thanks to everyone for signing up for this. This is Big Tech's Big Plans in the Music Industry. This is a webinar conversation that we are going to have where we're going to be breaking down the music strategies for the fang companies. That's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And we're also going to talk about Tencent. We're going to talk a little bit about Spotify as well. And then we're going to open it up for questions after that. As many of you know, my name is Dan Runcy. I'm the founder of Trapital, and I'm joined today by an award-winning journalist, a friend, and the founder of Water and Music, Sherry Hu. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Dan, for that kind introduction. And yeah, I'm really excited for today's conversation. I think if most of you had seen the email that we had sent out, and you'll also see in the chat that we have as well, we're going to be doing a few things. Like I said, this is going to be almost like a speed dating round. We're going to go through quick and break down each of these companies. We're going to share a few of the recent headlines, but also some things that are happening overall. As most of you know, 2020 has just been a huge year with so much happening. And Sherry and I often talk about these subjects and whether it's on Twitter or our newsletter. And when I hit her with the idea, literally like I was just talking about this with my Patreon group. So I was like, okay, let's definitely sync on this. So we're going to cover these companies. As I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the others and we're going to go back and forth after that. If you have any questions, I see a bunch of you are already introducing yourselves in the chat. Feel free to do that as well. Also, if you have any questions for the Q&A, please put them in the chat. We won't be able to unmute people for the Q&A part, but if you put the questions in the chat, we'll be able to scroll through and we'll do our best to answer the ones that come to the surface, especially if there are some repeat questions. So with that, I will go ahead and get started on the first company we're going to break down today, which is Facebook. Facebook is an interesting company from a music perspective. And I think that their music strategy in a lot of ways reflects how Facebook is just from an overall tech perspective. It's a company that is trying to be everything to a lot of different people. And you can honestly see some of this transpire now with some of the decisions that have been made with Instagram. This company in the past year has started to try to monetize live streaming. Obviously, in the spring, things were huge when Instagram was the go-to place for DJs or other live stream events. But over time, we eventually saw some of the limitations about how things can be difficult for Instagram if you're, whether you're Teddy Riley trying to do a versus or if you're another artist that is trying to play your music and then it gets cut off because the rights aren't there in place with what Instagram or Facebook currently has. The good thing is that there are a lot of good people that have been making a number of different moves to try to get clearance for the rights and get the music broadcasted so that it's easier for artists and for creators to be able to put their content on Facebook, monetize it through a number of the tools that they have. But I think the thing that still makes it tough is that, okay, is Facebook trying to be Twitch where this is the go-to spot if I want to live stream and monetize what I'm doing? Is Facebook trying to be YouTube? Some of you may have seen, but Facebook recently put in rules to try to have music videos be put on the platform automatically for an artist, the same way that you'll see YouTube has their agreement with Vivo and others for many artists. Or are they trying to be a place where you can set up a paywall for the things that you are doing? And I think that's where I leave things personally. And I think there's a lot to be desired for what Facebook can do. But I'll pause there and see what you think, Sherry. That's kind of my overall thought. It's a company that's trying to do a lot and be in a number of different places at the same time. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Dan. I totally agree. I've talked with some people off the record on background, like who are on their music team and just, they do have a really like well-staffed team now at Facebook for sure, working on music initiatives and music licensing. But a lot of times are just what I've heard, like the experience working there will be, oh, we're trying to get this music initiative off the ground, but there's just such a huge backlog of problems that Facebook as a whole has to deal with on the political side, you know, on the hate speech side, content moderation side in general. So music, while of course it plays a really big role, especially on Instagram in terms of like user engagement and artist engagement, 
in terms of like the company priority, I do question to what extent it is at the top, given that there are just much bigger societal quandaries that the company is facing. I was going to mention music videos because I think it is implied in these headlines that are on the slide, but I was intrigued that it wasn't explicitly like one of the headlines you included. And I think that is indirectly a reflection of maybe like how much people actually even know about this feature. I feel like if you look in the Facebook mobile app, so the day that Facebook launched this music video feature, I opened the Facebook app for the first time in a very long time. I had like deleted it from my phone, but I was curious to see, you know, how it worked. And the music videos, at least like the main hub for it, was kind of buried in a separate section under Facebook Watch. And already like so many of my friends who are not deep-seated in the tech world had never heard of Facebook Watch or never knew that that was really like a destination for the latest in music culture and artist releases. Yeah, so I think in concept, it's great that those kinds of features are out there. Just in terms of the ease of finding that from the user perspective, there's definitely still a long way to go. Yeah, agree 100%. One of the other quick things I'll say before you jump to Amazon Next, I think that Instagram Live obviously made a bunch of headways. I talked about them briefly, but the one thing I will add is that Instagram Live is clearly a great place to, okay, let's test this out. I can go live with someone quick, boom. What does the audience look like? What type of reach am I having? But when you clearly have some sustainable reach and either the infrastructure isn't there and there's an opportunity to take things further, you're probably going to be leaving some type of money on the table just given how the platform is set up. And that's part of the beauty of it, right? It's quick. It's easy to turn on. And that's just the way a lot of things work in tech. But anything that often works like that, there often is something else you may be giving up on the other side. And I think Versus is a great example of that. Versus in many ways graduated, if you will, from being purely on Instagram's feed to now it's being simulcast onto Apple Music. That's where the big platform is. And we can talk much more about that when we get to Apple. Just a last comment to add to that, which actually is a good segue into Amazon, which I'll be kicking off. I find that in like conversations about like music live streams for the past half year, it is easy just for the sake of, I guess, like streamlining communication to treat like the live streaming ecosystem as a monolith. When in reality, there are so many different like use cases for live streams and value adds for live streams. I feel like the kinds of live streams that happen on IG Live, you know, when your favorite artist, favorite rapper, just as you said, goes live spontaneously, that's more like live streaming as a communication tool. And I think that's always how most artists have used it kind of to, you know, bypass traditional media outlets, press channels to talk directly to their fans, to break news about their careers or their lives to fans. But this year, I think a major reckoning with live streaming in general is the relative lack of monetization with the exception of some platforms like Twitch, which is kind of under the Amazon umbrella. And maybe there is some middle ground between live streaming as communication, which it is very effective at, and then also for artists or any other creators who want to take it more seriously, adding more monetization tools kind of natively to the app. Yeah, that brings us to the next side in this deck. So for those who are following along, I'm on the Amazon side, and I'll just give a very brief summary because I do want to hear your thoughts, Dan, on these as well. I've kind of broken down the headlines into two sides, which are illustrated and how I've organized the headlines. The left side is all related to Twitch. The headlines that you see this year are all around the massive uptick in activity that Twitch and many other live streaming platforms as well, including Instagram, have seen as a result of the lack of touring and kind of the search for income in particular. I think if you look at like daily concurrent viewership metrics for music, there was definitely a lot of hype around live streaming. So it kind of spiked in March, April, and it's kind of leveled out since. But even now, the current levels are, I would say, like three to four X what they were prior to around mid-March. And I think that trend will actually continue to grow in a more like organic and kind of sustained way long term. So that's just one kind of metric to keep in mind. One theme with these headlines in general is that I guess Amazon as a company kind of has a hand in every part of the economy in like a very kind of monolithic way. And I think music is just like a subset of what that looks like in kind of like a subset of music and tech. Amazon was one of the first companies to seriously integrate live streaming with audio streaming in their recent integration with Twitch, whereby you can follow artists on Twitch. And then through that, through Amazon Music, get notified when they are going live on Twitch. And then you can kind of watch them natively within the app. I think there's been a lot of like challenges that I think artists and their teams have faced in terms of making that fan discovery and fan engagement experience as smooth as possible. So to have that within one platform is definitely interesting. The second half of this 
slide is about a very different world. So I feel like on one hand, Amazon has a great opportunity in Twitch, has a very specific kind of demographic as well, kind of, you know, came up in gaming, is catering to definitely younger people around ages, from like young teens to young adults. But I think when you think of like Amazon Music, when you think of their other businesses, like their Amazon Echo suite of devices, it definitely is aiming at a very different demographic. I feel like the Amazon Echo in particular, given that it lives in the home, is definitely like older people, families who are buying those devices. And if you look at any given Amazon Echo campaign, I think you'll be hard pressed to find one that does not include music. So the marketing of Amazon smart speakers with their streaming service, it's deeply intertwined. And so that's kind of one, I think, continued growth opportunity, especially as more people are staying at home, working from home. I think the smart speaker market in general will continue to grow and Amazon will play a part in that. One last point is that I guess the higher level context is that a lot of audio streaming services are kind of starting to look the same and they're making a lot of the same kinds of product decisions. And so for a company like Amazon Music that despite being owned by Amazon is trying to catch up with separate companies like Spotify, which are still far ahead in terms of their subscriber base. Of course, a company like Amazon Music is going to invest more into podcasts. And also given that, you know, Apple has both music and podcasts under its wing. So that's also a recent development. And I think that for audio streaming services, that combination will start to look like table stakes if you're looking to compete kind of at that mainstream corporate level. Amazon is a dark horse in the whole streaming landscape. And I think it's for pretty much all the reasons that you broke down. Unlike Facebook, where yes, Facebook is also invested in a bunch of different things. Amazon has the different aspects already set up and it's a little bit more blunt and clear about what it is and where things serve. I think finally, Twitch and Amazon are starting to talk to each other in a way that made sense. This is one of those acquisitions that happened early on in the streaming landscape. I'm talking about the acquisition of Amazon acquiring Twitch from things that I heard off the record. It didn't exactly seem like it was the best marriage and integration of the companies. However, over time, things eventually got to the point where it is today. And it's clear that there is an ownership of the live stream platform itself, where artists like Logic are now getting deals that are very similar to what an artist would get from a record label. And I recently had someone on my podcast earlier this past week, I had Al D. Alex Domachek, his company just landed a partnership with Twitch, and he's been known for breaking artists. They are trying to actively find ways to be able to push this forward. The place where I feel like Amazon's going to have a big advantage is in music. Because as you mentioned, music streaming is becoming a little bit of a commodity. And who benefits most in a commodity? Those that have the lowest price. And right now, Amazon Music is cheaper than Apple Music is. It's cheaper than Spotify is. And if we take away any of the playlists or any of the specialties that the streaming services are trying to make themselves unique, it ends up being a lot of the same product underlying that's there. And although Amazon is going for slightly older demographic, those that are owning Echoes or owning Alexas in their homes, the fact that they had these platforms in their house made it a very easy aspect to be able to upgrade. You can instantly be like, hey, Alexa, play me Baby Shark if you have kids. And then that could be there. You don't want to hear the ads. It's very easy. It's almost turnkey to be able to upgrade and get to that next aspect. That is the benefit of having a platform in the home. And I think that's going to serve them well. And it's going to help them creep up on some of the competitors, especially in the U.S. markets where Prime subscription is pretty strong. Yeah, exactly. That was the point I was going to make as well. That's the last point. In terms of like digital subscriptions and digital content, I think like the Prime membership is kind of the ultimate umbrella under which to see like the value that Amazon sees in music, especially when packaged in bundles in this way with their speakers. All right. So the next one is Apple, which is a perfect segue given everything we're talking about streaming. Apple just had their keynote the other day. Of course, they announced the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro. I'm getting mixed up iPhone 12 Pro Max. There's so many different ones now. But the interesting thing as it relates to Apple Music, though, is they had recently announced this bundle, Apple One. And this is their way to be able to have Apple Music as this core 
piece of their services business that is now being bundled with all of the other services, Apple Fitness, Apple TV, Apple Gaming, Arcade. I think there may be another one in there as well. And it's $14.99. So they're clearly trying to do a little bit of that Amazon Prime strategy where it's like, once you sign up for one thing, you now get everything. I think a lot of this is because Apple's competitor, at least in the US, is starting to become less Spotify and it's starting to become a little bit more Amazon because Amazon is playing that game a little bit better than Apple has been. I think the good thing that Apple does have is that all of those exclusive streaming partnerships that they had with artists four years ago for their albums, a lot of that carries through now where if you look at the U.S. streaming, especially from a hip-hop perspective, where Apple was strongest in 2015, 2016, they still get more streams from the big Drake release or the big Chance the Rapper releases than the other streaming services. So those aspects will help them well. And if you just think more broadly about some of the other partnerships they've done, Earlier this year, they had the playlist running with United Masters. They also did the Versus partnership as well to be able to bolster that a bit more. They also have Apple Fitness Plus, a bit of a competitor to Peloton's service that they have there. And the other thing they announced at the keynote this past week was the HomePod Mini, which is essentially an Echo. It's essentially an Amazon Echo. So they're trying to do the same thing. And it's just a bit interesting because for so many years, this was the company that revolutionized digital music streaming. Steve Jobs and all his keynotes going up there and getting people excited about the future of music. And they really owned that brand for a decade. So it's just a little different from both the consumer and a business perspective to now see Apple playing catch up. But in a lot of ways, that's kind of the way that the music side of the business for them has been for the past five or six years. Pretty much everything you know, leading up to them acquiring Beats has been them playing catch up. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. It's super fascinating. I think they are ultimately complementary, but I do see some fundamental tension in like two ways in what you laid out. So one, I guess this will be relevant to our conversation later about what all this means for Spotify, but thinking about like Spotify versus Apple and how given that they're the top two streaming services by their subscriber base, kind of how they try to differentiate from each other. I feel like Apple has always taken pride in, I guess, in non-algorithmic curation, in trying to, you know, uplift culture in a way that doesn't rely as much on algorithms or on automated recommendation. In contrast, you know, Spotify has leaned very heavily into all kinds of personalized algorithmic playlists. It seems that they come up with a new one every month or so. And you see this in the content partnerships that Apple Music has nailed with certain partners, whether it's with Versus or through the revamp of their kind of Apple Music Beats One, now named just Apple Music One suite of radio stations, which are, you know, 24-7 and all the shows are hosted by real artists or real, you know, curators and DJs across the music industry. At the same time, the announcement of this Apple One bundle, I'm so glad you brought up this point about like the history of Apple and how it was seen as like a real cultural innovator. I feel like bundles are not very innovative. I feel like as a strategy, they've been around for a really long time, you know, years, if not decades. And I think the direction of like going towards bundles just points to how for music streaming specifically, it's really, really hard for any quote unquote pure play music streaming service. So a service that only offers music to its users to be profitable. Spotify, even with podcasts now on this platform as well, has only been profitable for, I think, like two quarters out of its entire decade plus existence. I think Tim Cook has spoken out saying that, you know, we're not in streaming to make money. And I'm pretty sure they don't make money. It's like more for kind of the cultural cachet. So yeah, again, complimentary, but I kind of see this like push and pull there between like, you know, Apple in trying to grow their services business, they're pursuing this bundling strategy super aggressively. But then specifically on the music side, they want to be seen as very culture-friendly, supporting artists in a way that other streaming services are not. Agreed. And like someone just said in the comment, everything that bundled gets unbundled again. I'm glad this has been coming up more and more in like any business conversation. That's just any business over time. It's just bundling and unbundling. And I'm sure like something like Apple One will eventually be unbundled into kind of separate subscriptions in like five to 10 years time. All right. You got Netflix, right? Yes, that's right. So for the next slide, I'm going to be talking about Netflix for a bit, which is super different from all the other companies on this list kind of of the primary strategies you wanted to discuss. Actually, in planning for this, Dan and I were considering, oh, if we're including Netflix, why shouldn't we include Spotify? And I think the reason that we 
ultimately focused on Netflix kind of in this first part is because it is one of the biggest tech stocks in the world right now. Even though it is heavily focused on content, it is very tech-driven and I guess how it services that content to users. And its stock price is many, many times higher than Spotify's as of right now. And I tried to include headlines at first on the slide, but then I quickly realized that it might actually just be more evocative to show the titles of all of the music content that's been on Netflix in the past couple of years. It'll be really difficult, probably impossible to like fit everything on this one slide in terms of the music shows and films that Netflix has invested in. I think that goes to show how it is trying to, to position itself, at least in some way, as a destination for learning about music history and also learning about the current state of mainstream music culture. In terms of the categories for content on their service, I divide it into three main categories. I guess two of them fall under documentaries in general, but under that you have more general artist documentaries, a lot of which are directed or produced in a significant way by the artists themselves. But you have, you know, Taylor Swift's Miss Americana. You have the excellent, in my opinion, excellent documentary about Quincy Jones, just as a few examples. And then you have several tour documentaries as well. I think the most significant of which in the past year or so was Beyonce's Homecoming film, which was mostly a kind of recap performance, but also somewhat of a documentary element looking into her historic performance at Coachella. There are many other tour documentaries kind of on the way. Netflix just launched a new documentary with Blackpink. It's kind of a mix of like tour and just personal documentary about their lives. The second side, which I personally find like more interesting or intriguing as something that a company like Netflix would want to invest in are more like reality shows. So earlier on, I noticed that they were canceling a lot of reality shows and like talk shows actually that were on their service. I think they had a news show with Chelsea Handler that only lasted like one or two seasons and then it got canceled. And there's kind of like a cycle of that with a lot of their earlier talk shows. But in the past year or so, I think because they want to, just like Spotify wants to compete with terrestrial radio, Netflix wants to compete with what remains of cable news and like with the audiences who would consume cable news. And so they're investing in a ton of reality shows, some of which are really good and have performed really well. Others of which you could argue are definitely on like the trashier side. They're like not as high quality, but they're just trying to fill in that gap in terms of reaching a certain demographic and a certain taste. And music has definitely played a part in that. They had a rap competition that I thought was decently executed called Rhythm and Flow. And then you can't see the title on the slide, but in the bottom right, they recently launched a karaoke singing contest called Sing On. I'm actually not sure like how well it's doing in terms of commercial performance or viewership, but I think anyone in the industry can expect to see more of those shows come up in the future. Like I do expect to see another season of Rhythm and Flow at some point. I think that Netflix has been pretty strong and active in a number of things. I mean, the documentary game was good. All the ones you mentioned, we'd even mentioned the Black Godfather as well, which is another. Oh yeah, that's mind blowing if yeah. you all haven't seen it. Yeah, how <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so many of them. Also, I mean, there was one a couple of years ago, the Sam Cooke one, like that one was really good. And they have a series coming up about Selena as well, coming up later this year. So they've been on it. I like how you broke it down because there's clearly different aspects to it. And like Netflix's overall content strategy is clear, right? One of the reasons that they've at least avoided getting into, let's say, live sports is because they wanted things that were lasting and things that could be able to have a shelf life and weren't just like there and then they disappeared. I think that's worked out pretty well for them. And the good thing with music is that so much of it can live on and on, right? We're seeing all these documentaries. There was a whole entire back catalog of things that they could buy. They have the money to do it. And I think we're just seeing more and more deals come through. Like, I think Song Exploder is a really interesting one. I mean, the podcast started in 2014, and we're seeing them pick a few of these now. I think more and more of these can happen. This isn't Netflix-related, but it could be. I recently saw the deal come through where um, Chernin Entertainment, Peter Chernin's TCG group, did a deal with Spotify because they want to start mining Spotify's podcast so that they can bring those shows to the big screen. And in a lot of ways, I think that's what we're kind of seeing overall from a business perspective. What are the things that are performing well in the easier to lift mediums that have followings that can then be transferred over to a bigger audience? And that speaks well for Hollywood, which is historically trying to be more and more risk averse. And if a podcast has a good following and that can then be adapted into something that could work well for Hollywood, then they're all in it. And I think that works well for them. And if you have the ability 
ability to cut 20 and 30 million dollar checks to make this happen and not think twice about it. That's going to put you in a very different position that it's going to be hard for any company that's not in one of these companies today to be able to do that. So it puts them at a pretty good advantage. Yeah, just the last point I was going to say, the TV kind of streaming video on demand landscape, while it is super competitive, I don't really see any of the other streaming services positioned yet as a destination for artists who are looking to place their documentaries or their shows. The one exception may be Amazon Prime. I know they partnered with Rihanna on making the Fenty shows and videos and exclusive. So that's been good for them. But I think that's just one exception. Meanwhile, Netflix has this entire repository. And yeah, as you were saying, as they dig deeper into this back catalog and as labels themselves also invest more in documentaries about their own back catalog, I think that this group will only continue to grow. So next one is Google. Google, similarly to a lot of these other companies, you have to look at it from two different lenses. You have to look at what they've done with YouTube, which is the main focus of what they're doing, but also what Google has done itself. And one of the more interesting things is that the Google Play Music Store is shutting down this year in 2020. A lot of people may be like, either A, it's about time, or B, if you're a bit less familiar, what is the Google Play Store? Well, this is where Google was mostly selling their digital downloads, which was the way that digital music was focused in iTunes days. And even in the early days of streaming, digital downloads were still the go-to part of how people thought that the music industry was going to be pushed moving forward. The tough thing is, though, it's a hard thing to just let go of because it is a very lucrative asset to be able to sell. If you are the owner of it, then it's essentially zero marginal cost for you to be able to sell it. But if someone else sells it, of course, they are then paying you the rights of it. But it becomes a very lucrative asset in a way that streaming a song isn't. We could talk all day about the economics, but even though it may seem like Google could have done this move years ago, it's easy to understand why it took so long to be able to shut down the Google Play Store. That said, I think that will help clarity with YouTube because there's always been tremendous opportunity there. One of YouTube's biggest strengths is that it is still the second largest search engine on the internet. It is still a go-to place, especially in markets outside of the United States, especially for people to search for music is still the go-to to find music videos. It has been huge, especially for Latinx artists. They have every year at least five of the top 10 most streamed music videos, which happen to be the most streamed videos overall on YouTube, happen to be from Latinx artists. I think Ozuna had at least four of those himself that he was featured in in 2019. And that's kind of the thing that works out well for them. The other thing too is that they have a ton of money that they're going to be putting more of that towards Black voices. YouTube music is now going to be easier to integrate onto YouTube TV, which has become more and more popular. I know that cord cutting has been a thing for years, but there's still plenty of people that are getting their ways to be able to be cutting the cord. And if YouTube becomes the alternative for them, that can bode well if they're able to leverage that user that they have. And then maybe that could be a potential bundle for them to be able to offer something. And then the last thing on YouTube that they've been able to focus on well in the pandemic is the live festivals that they've been able to do. I still do think that a lot of the economics with live festivals are, I don't want to say shaky, but it's not necessarily as promising as people may have necessarily assumed it could have been because there's just nothing that can replace packing tens of thousands of people in a stadium or an arena paying you 50 bucks. You just can't do that. I do think that the fact that they have the presence, they have that retained attention and focus has been good. And I think it only served them well in moving forward. Yeah, I think all the points that you made definitely are in line with what I was thinking about, just, just to reiterate some of your points. Yeah, I do think outside, frankly, of like a lot of countries where Spotify or Apple like might be the top streaming service, YouTube does consistently come out on top. I actually had not thought about the angle of looking at the charts, but I think that's a great angle from which to understand the differences among these services in terms of their market strengths. I think absolutely, especially in Asia and Africa and Latin America, YouTube is absolutely winning out. I feel like another non-musical factor that is always important to keep in mind, especially when thinking about markets outside of the US and the EU, is that whether it's like which kind of phone people get or like what internet provider they get, let alone what music service they use, they're often driven by things like the cost of mobile data. 
And I know people working at companies like YouTube have really been trying in parts of Africa, especially to like work directly with the government to like help lower the cost of data. Cause I do know it's still quite expensive there, but given that YouTube is totally free, that you don't need an account to consume anything on the service, it's just so much more accessible. And so I think it lends itself much more easily to this kind of freer music consumption and also music discovery. Something that I don't think you mentioned that I think would also be good to bring up is that I think not all of YouTube's content initiatives have succeeded. I mean, as with any company, there's some kind of musical participation in this, but I'm thinking about YouTube premieres. They launched a bunch of, you know, exclusive premium content that you had to get a YouTube premium subscription for, which I believe was around $9, $10 a month, similar to YouTube music. But I think there was just so little conversion and consumption of that kind of content that they've made all of their YouTube premiere videos available for free, like in front of the paywall. So now like we can all kind of go and watch quote unquote YouTube premiere videos, even though you don't actually have to pay to watch it or may not even necessarily exclusive to the platform in some cases. So yeah, I think that's something to keep in mind. I think YouTube's strength will not arguably be in curating content, I think is the main takeaway. It is just in kind of being a much more open platform for people from around the world to kind of build their own audiences. All right, Tencent. Last but not least in our six companies. So Tencent is the only company out of the six we are talking about that is based in Asia and specifically in China. But I guess the first point that I do want to drive home, and that's just good to keep in mind in this environment, which has all kinds of implications commercially and politically and legally, is that I think to an extent the mainstream music industry, at least, is inseparable from Chinese money. And in particular, inseparable from Tencent, because Tencent has a stake now in two major labels, in Universal Music Group and Warner Music Group in particular. Back in 2017, Spotify and Tencent also did the unusual equity swap deal where they own minority stakes in each other. And so Tencent now has a stake in two of the world's biggest labels, biggest rights holders, and also one of the world's biggest platforms, in addition to running its own suite of four different you know, music platforms, namely QQ Music, Kugo, Kuo, and the karaoke app Weezing. Domestically in China, Tencent definitely commands a majority of the streaming market. I would say it's around like 70 to 80%. So that's kind of one angle, which is less about you know, like the user experience or content. It's just about having a stake in the power players in the business. So that's one. That's kind of the top left of these headlines that I have here. In the bottom left... I think something that's also good to keep in mind when looking at like the Chinese music industry, and I think given that Tencent dominates the local landscape, they're really kind of top of mind on this topic, is kind of innovating on the business model around music consumption. I think it's much easier to find more diversified models around music streaming and around artist support, streamer support, et cetera, in China in a way that's much more integrated than it currently is in the US or, or elsewhere in Europe as well. I think largely we are playing catch up to kind of those kinds of models being more commonplace. But if you look at Tencent Music's like revenues on any given year, they make the majority of their money not from audio streaming, neither subscriptions nor ad supported streaming on their equivalent of Spotify, but through tipping, just in the same way that people can tip you know, streamers on Twitch. That dynamic accounts for the majority of their revenue across their services. So I think as people expand more into the Chinese music market in terms of music marketing, I think we'd expect to see that model become more and more influential, at least in the US and Europe as well. And then this is an innovative model per se. So I guess as part of a recent licensing renegotiation, Universal and Tencent have kind of partnered on a variety of different content and tech initiatives. One of the content partnerships involves being able to pay gate music on certain streaming platforms in China and on certain platforms under Tencent specifically. And what I think that will be the equivalent of is like a windowing deal where you can window an album for a short period of time, say a couple of weeks to a month or so, to only have it be available to fans who are willing to pay and then make it more widely available elsewhere. So that's something to look out for. On the right side, these headlines are mostly around certain kinds of content deals that Tencent is doing, which I think by nature of being in China is very different from the kinds of deals that a Spotify might seek out, but maybe more interesting in terms of the kind of growth opportunity or how relatively 
underdeveloped to date, like the local music ecosystems are. Tencent does deals and also invests in companies all the time in places around the rest of Asia, around Southeast Asia, in Africa as well. And so they'll also have a hand in kind of the development of those local music economies. And also a last point, and then I'll turn it to you, Dan, is that I think in general in China and in many parts of Asia, and especially with Tencent, there is no stigma for now about a streaming service acting as a label. I think that concept is actually quite commonplace in a lot of different countries. I guess in part because funding for content in the first place is maybe relatively harder to come by. Tencent has interestingly stepped in to like provide a platform and provide a lot of funding to independent artists. And they're currently working on a compilation album highlighting, you know, local folk artists and folk music where fans can kind of vote on which songs they want to see in the compilation. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what are the world's biggest tech conglomerates purporting to provide this service kind of on lower level as well. Tencent is a huge player in a lot of this, a growing player. And I am... I don't want to say concerned, but I know you mentioned this recently. They upped the stake that they have in Universal, biggest music label in the world. It's going to be 20%. And as they continue to own and own so much of what they want to be able to own and what essentially becomes a U.S. asset that is then being sold through all this, I wonder if there's going to be any similar type of conversations that we've been starting to hear more and more lately with TikTok and how some of those issues have been just around how people feel about what the government in China could then do based on the data that's there, X, Y, Z. I know it's a little bit different because content ownership, at least from a major label perspective, is not the same thing as being able to own and mine through and distort algorithms the same way that there were challenges with that, with what Tencent had done, especially this past 2020 and some of the examples of that. So I think that's going to be something that I'm keeping on the back burner. And it's also tough because I think more generally, they're just also not playing the same type of game that the other tech companies are. I know that there's obviously plenty of issues with tech companies and privacy and the issues that people feel about the power that they've gained, especially here in the US. On the flip side, Tencent, of course, is essentially being backed and supported. It's not operating in a capitalist society, yet it kind of is because of the acquisitions and deals that it's made, but it also is kind of not because it's being directly supported by the government in a way that other competitors can't necessarily compete in that landscape. So I almost wonder if the same type of discussions we're having now about TikTok, is that eventually going to happen about Tencent as they continue to get more of a foothold in things? It'll be interesting to see. And with that, I know that we want to be able to save a majority of the rest of the time for Q&A. Just quickly, Sherry, from you, is there anything about any of these strategies that related to anything that stuck out with how it relates to TikTok or with how it may relate to Spotify? I will try to keep this brief. In terms of TikTok and Spotify, I mean, I can briefly mention some developments with TikTok that I think are definitely related to all of these companies. This is kind of related to what I mentioned earlier in the discussion about Amazon in terms of more seamlessly integrating more social live streaming experiences with more lean back, algorithmically driven consumption experiences. And I think there's a similar conversation to be had with TikTok, given that in spite of all of the like fuss this year, I think it's still owned by ByteDance. <laughs> or I think ByteDance still has a majority share of the company. And ByteDance also owns Rezo, which is another relatively newer music streaming service that I think if ByteDance and those two companies wanted, you know, those two services could be integrated in a much more seamless way, which could be interesting given that, as I'm sure like many of you in the audience know, TikTok has I think one of the most interesting effects on marketing, not just marketing a song and make, helping it go viral, but also actually driving streams on paid premium DSPs and making actual money for the artists and rights holders involved. So if TikTok can kind of own that whole path, I guess, in that whole funnel, I think that could be especially powerful. TikTok recently did a United Masters deal which incentivizes TikTok to also be early in developing and supporting early creators on its platform, which is something that previous you know, short-form video platforms haven't done quite as well in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. With Spotify, I think we touched upon a lot of what I'm thinking about in kind of the previous slides. But I mean, the first thing, honestly, that comes to mind, not to keep going back to it, is bundling. And by this fact that if you are 
an aggregation-driven, very commodified subscription streaming service. At some point, you do have to be bundled with other kinds of content in order to even have a chance of turning a profit. And I think, from my sense, many people in the industry are having this reckoning with the fact that for a lot of labels, especially for a lot of artists, a huge source of their revenue comes from these services that may not be prioritizing music in the long term, where music is just a drop in the bucket for them compared to other revenue streams. And so if you're depending so much for exposure and for revenue on these companies where the incentives and motivations are just so skewed in that way, I think that's the perfect landscape for newer kinds of models, newer kinds of platforms to come out, especially in the context of a pandemic as well. Well said. All right. So we want to open up the rest of the time. We have about 12 minutes left for questions. So if anyone has any questions for Sherry and I about any of the companies that we talked about, anything that is more broadly related to big tech, please throw them in the comment section and we'll do our best to answer them. We'll keep most of the answers quick just so we can get as many in there as possible, but feel free. Let's hear them. Okay. I think I just saw Monica asked about SoundBetter. Are you familiar with SoundBetter? No. So SoundBetter is a marketplace essentially connecting artists, producers, engineers, songwriters to opportunities to collaborate with each other and just to do kind of like work on a gig by gig basis. Not that dissimilar to a, say like an, an Upwork or Fiverr, but definitely much more tailored to the creative community. And they got acquired by Spotify I think last year or earlier this year. If you go on their website now, their website says like Sound Better by Spotify for Artists. And I honestly haven't heard that much development about Sound Better on my end. So honestly, like I've seen more development on the podcasting side, maybe in part through the acquisition of Anchor in developing, you know, marketing and monetization tools for podcasters than I necessarily have for musicians. And I'm not sure if that is because there's like a difference in like business development priorities of the company now because they're expanding so much in their podcast strategy, not so much on the music side. But yeah, I wish I had more to say, but maybe that's kind of mini story in itself. Interesting. I'll check that out. That was a good question. And yeah, I said, I didn't hear about that company. So that's good to know. So Lydia asked a couple of questions, but let me focus on this one here. She asked about live digital experiences and their future afterward. For instance, album launches tied to video and gaming platforms like Ava Max and Roblox. Are those here to stay after the pandemic? My answer is yes, I do. I think that we are going to see more of these. And I think that the pandemic accelerated what was already happening. It didn't really create this as a new thing. I think that there was a huge market for things like Fortnite, Roblox that was already happening. And I think things like the Travis Scott astronomical experience, I think we're going to see more of that. The fact that they're creating these things like the party royale that are built for music experiences in many ways it's perfect because it gives artists and the teams around them the branding opportunity allows them to recreate themselves with whatever alter ego that a lot of them have they have their own worlds that they are picturing both with their music videos that are becoming a bit more storyline music videos themselves now more than ever i mean plenty of artists have done this for years but i feel like this has become even more of a mainstream trend than it has been before and that really is perfect for i know the term is overused but it's perfect for this metaverse type world where people want to be able to interact with things. So I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah, just very quickly. I totally agree. The other day, I think I saw someone just like posting on social media asking this very random question, like, why are album covers still shaped like squares? And it was like a very simple question, but I think it was like actually very thought provoking point because like technology has changed in so many ways, you know, since the heyday of physical sales. And still I'll relate this back to like the live kind of album listening in games concept a lot of like music marketing is still confined to these very traditional formats, whether it's like a square album cover, which gives you very limited amount of room, you know, to execute on a certain creative vision or a handful of music videos to go with singles, which I guess maybe have evolved into maybe like snippets for TikTok, you know, videos or even like a TikTok video in lieu of a music video in and of itself. But I think the partnerships that we've seen with gaming companies and what they've done with artists has shown us there's just so much more potential for creativity and for more immersive experiences that may actually draw certain fans in even more than just going to a listening party in person and kind of sitting there and just, you know, consuming the audio without moving around as much. I think there's a ton of potential there. That said, I think there's also still experimentation. There's still a lot of work that has to be done before, I guess, any artist can have access 
to or can afford to create the kind of experience we saw with Travis Scott. I think that experience with Fortnite was definitely once in a lifetime kind of experience. It took several months, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of resources to put together for a show that was put on multiple times in the game, but was just 10 minutes of, you know, you taking your character around this immersive world inspired by Travis's music. And if you see like the shows that have come up in Party Royale ever since, they've basically all just been, I see it as just like static YouTube videos copied and pasted into Fortnite. And so you kind of have to go to the stage where you just end up just watching a static video. And I totally understand why they're going with that for now, because it is much more cost-effective. It allows them to expand their partnership base. But after seeing the Travis Scott show, it does fall a little bit short. So I am excited for, you know, a lot of these 3D design tools, either the tools themselves start being of lower cost, or also for artists to embrace these more open platforms that anyone can kind of build in, like Roblox and like Minecraft and others as well. Quickly, Vinode... Sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, had said, which startups are you guys most excited about and why? I'll keep it quick. One of the ones that perked my interest is called Indify, and they are bringing artists together and trying to match them with the best teams because often what we see is artists end up working with the first people that reach out or whoever reaches out in their DMs, not necessarily the best people possible. And this is about doing that. How do you make sure you have the best team around you? How do you make sure you have, whether it's an attorney, manager, etc. And I think this is probably one of the biggest gaps that people don't talk a lot about in the music industry. As a pre-quarter to a disclaimer, I do not own any stake or share in this company. I just think what they're doing is dope. Anything on your end, Sherry? Yeah, I'll try to be quick too. So yeah, Indify, I think it's interesting to see how they've pivoted. So they used to be like an A&R analytics platform, but now they kind of pivoted to this kind of network where artists can connect with, you know, potential collaborators and team members, which I think is really great. Another one that is kind of still in development is called HiFi, and they are creating financial tools for artists to have much more transparency over how they're doing across their entire businesses in a more centralized way and kind of in a more centralized dashboard across streaming, live, publishing, merch, whatever other revenue streams that they have. And in general, I think the topic of like artist financing that still has so much more room for improvement and expansion and disruption in the truest sense. So I'm excited about that space too. All right. Another one here. I'll let you answer this question. Jonathan Ramos asked, thoughts on Clubhouse? I ask thoughts, but you and I have talked about Clubhouse before, so we know what we think. So I'll let you answer it. Okay. For those of you who have not heard about Clubhouse, it is a social audio app that has gained a ton of buzz in kind of Silicon Valley circles. They raised $12 million from Andrews and Horowitz not too long ago. It's currently in beta, but they've definitely expanded their kind of invite list dramatically. And so if you have someone in Clubhouse, they can invite you in pretty much automatically. What do I think about it? So I think the context behind this question is that there have been a lot of moments of like controversy within the app recently that I think have led to some concrete change. But just in summary, so Russell Simmons, an executive that was the center of an HBO documentary about sexual assault, he was somehow invited into the app by some other woman actually, and was invited up to speak on a stage. And that led to like, rooms about the room, about the room, about the room. And there's like a ton of drama around it. And people were wondering like why that was allowed to happen. There are other conversations that didn't involve like hate speech, but just were kind of insensitive culturally. And I think the founders have kind of responded to it and added more severe moderation tools now, which I think they do have to kind of act at this speed and like act almost instantaneously, which of course, bigger platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, et cetera, can't really do. So far, I've been okay with like the founding team's response to Clubhouse. I'm part of a Clubhouse conversation about the industry that takes place every Wednesday evening. And that's been great. And I think because we're very intentional about bringing in diverse perspectives, people from different backgrounds as well. So overall, my experience has been positive, but I understand kind of the controversy around it. Another question. I'll take this one. Why don't the DSPs allow direct fan connection, Spotify, opportunity for them to give artists opportunity to connect with their fans and could charge even more for that per month. And then there could be more pie to share for the artists. This question is one that Spotify does get a lot of pressure on to do, whether it's creating some type of social experience or just creating that direct fan connection. I think there's a few reasons why they have it. And this isn't necessarily a defense because I think there should be a way to do this. This is just understanding where they're coming from. There is a tendency and a desire to keep people on the platform, whether you are running a platform for any of these companies. And the moment that you offer some type of direct fan connection or some type of direct opportunity, you then enable the opportunity for people to be able to connect and take that conversation or take that relationship 
off of that platform and bring it onto something else. And if you're an artist trying to connect with a fan, there are plenty of better ways to connect with people better than Spotify. And Spotify knows this. So it's a little bit of a leverage game in order to know that, okay, if you want to be able to reach your audience and have your music reach them in a way where we have the rights, you have the ability to hear it. We are one of the few places that do that and it's convenient. So it's a bit of a power play right now. That said, these power plays do lose their power over time as more and more consumers find other alternatives. So I wouldn't be surprised if this changes eventually, but I think that's the biggest reason why we haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I think kind of one example of a feature that was launched this year that in concept is good, but I feel like didn't get like used that much with Spotify's like tipping feature, like kind of the donation link for artists as well, which I think is tapping into the mentality that a lot of artists really feel on other platforms like Bandcamp, which are not like, you know, streaming apps per se, but they're more kind of like download apps to increase kind of the fan to fan relationship. While I think like some artists did get tips through that, I think where Spotify is now as a company in terms of branding, there's just like a lot of clashes there. A lot of artists, like we're not afraid to speak out about that. So we are at time right now. So I want to thank everybody that had joined us. I think we got right around like 250 or so that joined. So that's great considering, you know, all the people that signed up as well. Bunch of great questions. Sorry, we couldn't get to all of them, but most of you know how to contact both of us. Anything else you want to say before we close out, Sherry? Only other thing I have to say is just thank you, Dan, for inviting me and for this idea about organizing this webinar. Everyone should subscribe to Trapital if they haven't already. It's a great newsletter, especially about hip hop. If you're a hip hop fan or if you're in the business, I'd highly recommend it as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. And likewise, for all your great work, especially what you just sent out today on everything you're covering on music and tech related at Water and Music, sign up. It's great stuff. And we'll be following up with everyone shortly. So if you share any feedback with us there and we'll be in touch, you know where to find us. Talk soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple podcast, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram that can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.